This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Beckett's depiction of love, of romantic love, is certainly not that of a contemporary rom-com. But to maybe take a, a broader perspective on it, as love is more the kind of a relationship of, of an individual to another, not just the romantic love. It is a strong concern throughout Beckett's works, this idea of the responsibility, the engagement one individual has with someone else, the respect and rapport with other people. It's very much put on stage in Godot and Endgame, just to take two fairly obvious examples. It runs right through the condition of the main sequence of the three novels and even when you get down to the unnameable the sort of the voice of a single consciousness trying to define itself to itself it's always concerned about others in a variety of different ways in his last real novel How It Is which is a difficult book a difficult and unpleasant book it's very much about the concern of one to the other and how at the one hand that can be brutal but how at the other hand it can also be this possibility of a kind of recognition and an understanding I think the later works both in the drama and the prose really bring this out In 1969, Samuel Beckett was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature for his writing, which in new forms for the novel and drama, in the destitution of modern man, acquires its elevation. But how misunderstood was Samuel Beckett as a writer, and importantly as a man? And how different was he from the hermit of the legend? Hello, good morning, and you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. Well, this morning's show is devoted to the inner mindscape an outer landscape of Irish novelist, playwright and poet Samuel Beckett, arguably one of Ireland's greatest writers, yet possibly one of her most misunderstood. Dan Gunn, Professor of Comparative Literature and English at the American University of Paris and Joint Editor of the Letters of Samuel Beckett 1957 to 1965, talks me through the recently published third volume of Letters and what they reveal or not about their complex and genius author, and the co-directors of the Beckett Summer School at Trinity College Dublin, Dr Samuel Slott, Dr Nicholas Johnson and Shona McRaymond discuss the tremendous physicality and the intense emotional challenges in performing and reading Beckett. This is a show about pain and burnout, vulnerability and determination, perspectives and connection. But first, write or perish the warm, playful and humane letters of Irish novelist, playwright and poet Samuel Beckett. Before he died, Samuel Beckett agreed to allow his letters to be published, but stipulated that these should consist of only those letters that have a bearing on my work. The Letters of Samuel Beckett, 1957 to 1965, is the third volume of Beckett's authorised letters to be published and is one remarkable feat of literary scholarship and without doubt one of the greatest collections of 20th century letters. Yes, I am a fan. This volume focuses on the years when Beckett is striving to find a balance between the demands put upon him by his growing international fame and his need for the peace and silence for which new writing might emerge. They also reveal Beckett's intense and personal correspondence with translator and critic Barbara Bray, one of the very few people with whom he discussed his work. 
I have to say I loved these letters. You get so close to Beckett and his intimate relationships, his imagination, his fears. And what's so interesting is how the public image or myth of Beckett as this dark, austere man of letters is so different to the private, playful Beckett, the genial, compassionate, open-minded and incredibly loyal friend that Beckett truly was. However, we also get some of the dark side of Beckett's moody personality. Some of these letters are full of uncertainty and devastating self-doubt, the dread of failure that edit Beckett all through his professional life. Well, The Letters of Beckett, Volume 3, is edited by George Craig, Martha Dow Feschenfeld, Dan Gunn and Louis Moore Overbeck. And over the weekend, I got the chance to talk to one of its four editors, Dan Gunn, Professor of Comparative Literature and English at the American University of Paris. I asked Dan, when reading these insightful letters, how important is it for the reader to acknowledge the larger processes impinging on Beckett at that time? Let's take a listen. Beckett's becoming very well known at this point. If you think of 1953 was when Godot was first produced and by 1955 it's being produced internationally and his fame is spreading. So this volume really picks up on the time where Beckett's renown is international and posing him all sorts of problems. It's posing him both a problem on a what I call a more superficial or general level that lots of people want to speak to him, interview him, ask him about all sorts of things that he's not interested in responding to. He has to work much harder to keep his privacy. Uh, The second, I think, more profound level is that given that Beckett's aesthetic as he develops it really in the 1940s is one that's anchored in failure in indigence, is the word he uses very often, but failure in indigence, it's much harder for him seriously to maintain, particularly to friends of his who really are indigent and failing, that indigence and failure is the way to go when he's being internationally celebrated. This goes on being a problem and reaches its apogee in 1969 to 70 when he wins the Nobel Prize. It's hard for people to believe that he really didn't want to win the Nobel Prize and he really didn't enjoy it. But I can tell you from the letters, he really didn't want to and he really didn't enjoy it. So that is one of the larger processes. Then there's a historical process, which is this is the period of volume three letters, 1957 to 1965. The big event going on in France where he's living is the Algerian War. It starts as the insurgency, and then it's, uh, well, something that's very familiar to us today, of course. And then there's the move against the use of torture by the French military in Algeria. And Beckett is very, very involved with this indirectly. He cannot be directly involved because he knows if he signed the most important document of the era, which is called the Manifeste des 121, the manifesto of the 121 intellectuals and writers who wrote out against the use of torture by the French military in Algeria, he would certainly have been, almost certainly have been deported. So as a foreigner, he doesn't do that. But many of his best friends, his great actors, Roger Blain, Jean Martin, the writers Marguerite Duras, Maurice Blanchot, and most importantly of all, his publisher, Jérôme Landon, they all sign this manifesto. And they are, as a result, receiving bomb threats and then actual bombs. Both his publisher is bombed at their publishing house and his publisher is bombed at his own home. So this is the world that he's moving in, almost quite close to civil war in France. But Beckett being Beckett, he doesn't actually comment on it very directly or very rarely. And we have somehow to give a bit of an account of that as academics trying to provide a an understandable volume for our readers. So that's, I'd say, the single most important historical context that we felt we had to fill in a bit. Now, Dan, I loved these letters because I think that letters give you such an intimate window into how the author is thinking, 
what they're dreaming about, what they're worried about, all their concerns, and also a lot about their temperament. And what's interesting about these letters is that the possible public image of Beckett as a very austere man, as a very severe, a bit dark, is very, very different to the man that we get in these letters. We get a very loyal friend, a very compassionate friend, a very warm person. And as Sam, as he affectionately signs off in all his letters, he really cares about the people around him. So it's very, very different to the picture that we possibly have as the man who wrote Happy Days, Crafts, Last Tape, Endgame. It's very different to the Waiting for Godot type. Indeed, indeed. As his fame grows, the one thing he feels that is good and positive about this is that he can put this fame, this celebrity that he's now got, and this includes, of course, money, at the disposal of his friends. That's most obvious with the friends that have been supportive to him during his long, difficult years. But even with new friends, he's immensely supportive. And it's, there's hardly a letter that goes by in the later years, especially to people who, whom, whom he knows to be not particularly well off, that isn't accompanied by the, the, the note saying something like, you know, no question of money. If it's a question of money, let me know. Uh, I'm attaching a check. So when I was scanning the letters to Avigdor Arika and his wife, Anna Teek, there was a big collection of over 200 letters. There was many a page that just said something like affectuousement. He always usually wrote in French, affectuousement, or no question about it. And I would said to Avigdor Arika, the painter, I said, well, what's this? And he said, well, attached to each of these notes came a check. And Avigdor explained to me, I never asked for money, but Sam insisted on sending me money when he knew I was having problems. There's a beautiful example, which will in fact come in volume four. It's a little note, postcard to... Avigdor, Arika, the painter, and he says, um, I'll say it in French, then in English, he says, J'étais-vous fauché en rêve, ne m'en de pas. And so I think that's, that's more, not quite verbatim, but pretty close. So he says, I saw you down and out in a dream. Don't upbraid me. Here it is, the money. <laughs> it was enough for Sam Beckett to dream one of his friends having financial trouble for him to send a check. And the money is just the tip of his generosity. He really goes out of his way. I, I could read you a a short letter. This is to Robert Pinget, the novelist perhaps amongst his contemporaries, slightly younger than Beckett, whom he most admires. And I'll read it to you in English, though this was a letter written in French, but it's been beautifully translated by my Irish colleague and mentor, George Craig. So this is from the 8th of April, 1962. And Robert Pinget has sent Beckett his novel called L'Inquisitoire, The Inquisitory. And just to put it in context a bit, Pinget's a man who's got a lot of problems and is struggling. And he knows that Beckett's the most important writer that he'll ever meet. You can just imagine for a younger writer who's struggling what this must have been like to receive a letter like this from Sam Beckett. My dear Robert, your book impressed and moved me tremendously. I'm now rereading it, having read it too quickly before the last departure for Usi and wanting to leave it for Suzanne. Without talking about the writing, matchless in ease of flow and transparency, what struck me most is this sort of lighting of the light from within that enfolds all things and brings peace to all things, like the air of Umbria caressing an entombment. It is an embracing of being that you alone are capable of. It is there in almost everything you've done, but never to such a degree of radiance as here. It is the work of a great writer and a great heart. Love, Sam. P.S. That you should agree with yourself on title and commas is all that matters. For the rest, just relax and bon courage. If I can be of use to you in any way, whatever, I'm counting on you to let me know. Extraordinary, partly because Beckett doesn't use very many metaphors in his letters. And this, 
a very mysterious but beautiful metaphor, like the air of Umbria caressing an entombment. It's, it's a wonderful thing, and, and that's not untypical of the letters that Beckett wrote to young or aspiring writers, uh, including Harold Pinter, for example, to encourage them in their work. And what's interesting there is that how he writes and how he expresses himself in his letters. Some of the time the language is a bit difficult. He mixes between French and English and the handwriting, there's a big issue with illegibility of some of these letters because I know that he described it as his foul fist. He was suffering from deteriorating eyesight. He had serious challenges with pain management and there's different letters that we can see quite clearly the other external forces that were shaping him as he wrote his letters. He was a very emotionally driven man. Maybe two or three things of what you're saying. There is the issue of transcription. I'm proud to say that in this volume three, and as is true of volume two and will be true of volume four, there's only a few occasions where we've had to admit defeat and, and said allege, as we say, for illegibility. But he does have, as someone has called, the most difficult handwriting of the 20th century. It is extraordinarily difficult. And this volume three period is the most difficult of all in my view and most difficult of all within the most difficult are the letters to Barbara Bray. Some people think this may be partly because he wasn't always sure he wanted to be understood or read which may be the case. And that's an interesting point because there's a great informality to how he writes to his friend Barbara Gray. There's huge openness but you almost come very close to how you see how he retrenches and how he advances in his friendship and there's a lot of toing and froing in that relationship. I mean our role is not really a, strictly a biographical one, but the letter, what the letters reveal, I would say, if I had to put a pattern on it, is that women are very, very strongly drawn to Samuel Beckett, and this from his young age. famous example might, in the early years is maybe Peggy, Peggy Guggenheim, who clearly fell head over heels in love with him. Women are drawn to him, I think, by his looks, by his seriousness, something very pure about him, not a saint, but very sort of um, unworldly, perhaps, about him. And... I don't have the impression myself, because he's not tied down by what we might call bourgeois morality, that he had a great inclination to say no. But for a man who probably just by inclination says yes, then he finds himself repeatedly in rather complex situations, because he does, from the late 1930s, have a partner who then becomes his wife in the early 1960s, and to whom he grows a great debt of loyalty, and, and whom I don't think he ever really considers leaving. So if he's got his partner, then wife, as she becomes Suzanne Deschevaux-Duminil, and who's buried next to him in the Montparnasse Cemetery, and he's got several other women to whom he's said yes, then it gets him into rather complex situations. And so if there is a pattern, though I wouldn't, I'm always cautious of patterns with someone as complex as Beckett, there's one of an, an initial very uh, powerful corresponding in all sorts of ways, and then a need to withdraw to some extent, but very rarely completely, in fact, almost never completely. He somehow manages to remain friends with everyone he's almost everyone he's ever been friends with. That for someone else other than us to figure out how he managed to achieve that, because not simple. He really is very, very close to nearly everyone he's ever been close to. And we see a very vulnerable side when it comes to his creative output. He suffers terribly from self-doubt. He seems very unsure of his own heart at times. And he seems to question himself and his capacity or his interest in relationships. One thing I'm curious to know, Suzanne, his wife, we don't have any letters from her from this period. Why is that? We don't have any letters from all Beckett's correspondence to him. We have very few for the simple reason that in those days, keeping a copy of a letter that you were sending meant doing a carbon copy. 
So, and Carbon's were not particularly easy, especially for handwriting. Most people were handwriting to him. And Beckett himself kept nothing. He, he explains to someone at some point, I submitted it to my Occam's razor. He was not a collector in any sense. So people sent him letters, he read them, absorbed them, and then destroyed them. He didn't keep them. So for us to have the other side of the correspondence we, means that the person originally sending the letter would have had to keep a copy. And unfortunately, that's usually the, the people that usually do that are business people. So we have quite a lot of copies of publishers' letters to him, but not really of his, most of his intimates. So it's really the other side of the correspondence, Beckett's letters to others that we've been collecting. And in the case of Suzanne, as in the case of his uh, mother, father, and quite a few other of his family members, we simply do not have any letters. In the reviews to Volumes 1 and 2, perhaps we weren't quite explicit enough in the introductions, though I thought we were. We should, perhaps should have made it even clearer, as we do in introduction to Volume 3, these letters do not exist, to the best of our knowledge. And that's also to the best of the knowledge of the Beckett family. One of the letters I was really interested to read was on South Africa and Beckett's abhorrence of apartheid. And while he was very cautious and deliberate in what he said and did politically. He was also very selective where his plays could be performed. And this is what power he showed over the situation. This was his ultimate political commentary. Beckett was a very informed and he's a very political man in his own way. Remember, he risked his life fighting with the French resistance. So he's not a man who's apolitical. He just doesn't believe in making statements to what he calls to the journalists. He doesn't believe in making public statements about things. In this way, he's very much not like our current celebrity culture, but he does take stands. He took stands most famously by joining the resistance, but he also writes a play late in his career for Vasclav Havel, who's then in prison. He, as you say, forbids the presentation of his work before segregated audiences in South Africa, and he takes a stance on the issue of censorship. It's very strong when Endgame is being produced in London for the first time when it's going to be premiered, and the Lord Chamberlain, which was then the public censor in Britain, refuses to allow... Beckett to say in the play Endgame, God the bastard, he doesn't exist. And Beckett's compromise position is to say, God the swine, he doesn't exist. Which, as you can imagine, wasn't seen as much of a compromise. And when the Lord Chamberlain says, no, that won't do, Beckett says, you simply cannot put this play on. In fact, he says in a letter to George Devine, director at the Royal Court Theatre, this is 1958, to be quite frank with you, George, I'm very tired and you must be even more so of all this buggering around with guardsmen, riflemen and hussars. There are no alternatives to bastard agreeable to me. Nevertheless, I've offered them swine in its place. This is definitely and finally as far as I'll go. What is the point of my submitting two other terms of equal virulence as they would necessarily be? Even if I could think of them, and I can't, if swine is not acceptable, then there's nothing left but to have a club production or else call the whole thing off. I simply refuse to play along any further with these licensing grocers, which is how he, how he describes the English um, censorship regime. So when it comes to taking a position, he can take a position, and it's mostly around his own work, which he defends very, very uh, strongly. If one other example I could invoke is when Archbishop McQuaid, the Archbishop of Dublin, steps in to forbid the playing of a Sean O'Casey play, which is uh, yoked with a, the Beckett radio play All That Fall, and Beckett hears about this. He intervenes and he says, not only can you not play my play, but he withdraws the productions of all his plays by professionals and amateurs for the rest of future. And then he, of course, reneges on that after a few years. But he's very, very, very angry about any type of censorship. In a sense, that's partly why I think he lives in France, where censorship is much, much more lax. So he is a political man. He just doesn't believe in spouting off about it. And 
Yes, he, he really does say a lot about his own life and his drinking habits. A night where he's sensible, he says, is one when he can remember the next day where he parks his car. So very often he's coming home in his De Chevaux car uh, and parks it, and the next day he's not too sure where it was. This is a letter I'm going to read. I could give you a lot of context, and you would need a lot of context to understand it fully. But even then, it would be difficult because he's writing it in, as he says, in a state of exaltation. The one bit I should say, perhaps, is that he's trying at this point to figure out the title for his second radio play written for the BBC, which finally becomes called Embers. And he's playing with the name Ebb, and he's not quite sure what to call it. And he's writing to Barbara Bray here. So there'll be a lot in this that you'll think, what is he saying here? But believe me, we've worked on these letters, and we're still pretty mystified by some of it. It's rather a long letter, but it really gives you a sense of Beckett at full flow here something he does much more in French than in English. And it's very hard for me to read just because I'd have to punctuate in it in my own way because he doesn't punctuate it very much. So forgive me if I stumble a little bit, but I really think it's an interesting piece. This is 17th of February, 1959, writing from Paris to Barbara Bray in Purley, Surrey. Dear Barbara, still drunk this morning after sudden, hopeless, useless midnight bucket of brandy and sitting in special ever since 37 pub and have yours to hand and in head grinding old poem in vain by Hilderlin, influenced, entitled Dieppe, circa 37 also, viz, Encore le dernier reflou, le galimore, le demi-tour, puis le, les pas vers les vieilles lumières, suggesting for title of Bolton Hollingway, first, the last ebb, and next, some hours later, because enough of last that are never, ebb, simply, without more, which please, for Christ's sake, approve, adopt, enter Rhine and announce though last night before dip occurred to me, or was it, again, the water's edge? But no, the elder statesman and the potting shed. No ebb, for God's sake. On the strand is utterly impossible. Why not bollies? Of all days to have appointment with dentists, grudgingly accorded and uncancelable, unshaved in breath, old fiend and fresh beer. I'm terrified. Teeth rotting under bridges, head full of fibrous tumours. This evening, Arabal reading at the posh. Les Deux Bureaux, Guernica and other. Friday, Ionesco's tour at the Récamier. Putain de vie. Thanks for cuttings. Jesus, how I hate them. You should have gone to Lansdowne Road. Charming venue, full of memories. Cricket, unexpectedly, with brother's huge bat. Hardly lifted. Loss of railway ticket. Fear of whiskered porter. Walk home devious ways, ten miles. Huge bat. Father, rampaging on Mrs. Rooney's road. Mother in furious swoon. Police alerted in vain. Midnight, foodless to bed. Charming ground, Dickie Lloyd, Wakefield, Jorigui, ape-armed uncle beating down umbrellas with short stick, part of boyhood, heroic days. Work no good, hammer, hammer, adamantine words, house inedible, hollow bricks, small old slates from demolished castle, second hand, couvreur fell off backward, leaning scaffolding, and burst, fat old man, instantaneous, the things one has seen and not looked away. RTF studio for recording of a passage of All at Fall. Complete confusion, not good, but what can one tell? Truta worried, Blain trying to howl. We, oui, enough for today. Close now. Wells crazy, liquefied again. Thanks for all, love to the girls. And up and go to hell. No future here, no present. No Johnson. Well rid, head on table, wind. Little quick clouds, light, dark, etc. Love, Sam. Excuse my pronunciation of your Irish word for the strand, but you can see he's just flowing. It's flowing out of him. And what I could say to your listeners is there is not a paragraph break here. I've inserted a type of paragraphing to try and separate out the different subjects a bit, but it all just flows. 
that's the sort of Beckett we sometimes get in the letters. Professor Dan Gunn from the American University of Paris. The Letters of Samuel Beckett, 1957 to 1965, is published by Cambridge University Press and retails at about 35 euro in paperback. Okay, next up, we're going to visit with the Beckett Summer School at Trinity College Dublin and meet with three experts in the field and hear about their unique approach and engagement with Samuel Beckett. But first, let's take a bit of a break. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I'm Susan Cahill. Well, if you'd like to get in contact with the show, well, why don't you drop me an email at talkingbooks at newstalk.ie. It's always lovely hearing from you. Really lovely. So off you go. OK, let's now move into another Beckett space. Reading and performing Beckett. The Samuel Beckett Summer School at Trinity College Dublin provides a unique experience for students and scholars and lovers of Beckett's work to engage and explore his work from a variety of different perspectives in order to examine and re-examine Beckett's evolving legacy and relevance. Now in its fifth year, the school's programme is suited to all types of readers and has established itself as quite the centre of excellence. Well, this week I popped over to the Beckett Summer School to find out why Beckett has become so durable in global culture and why he has inspired a wide and variant interest among artists, sculptors, painters, poets, philosophers and other writers. Let's take a listen. Hi, I'm Nicholas Johnson and I'm an assistant professor of drama at Trinity College Dublin. I'm also co-director of the Samuel Beckett Summer School and I got into Beckett originally by performing the role of boy in Waiting for Gatto at the age of seven. I'm Shona McRaymond. I work on the Samuel Beckett Summer School, um, which is about to enter its fifth year next year. Uh, my interest in Beckett has been from a performance and theatre perspective, but also 
also because of the Irish connections that we've been trying to introduce in the public program. Hi, I'm Sam Sloat from the School of English at Trinity College, and along with Nick, I'm the co-director of the Beckett Summer School. I've been uh, reading and teaching Beckett's works for quite some time now. Nick, you have performed as well as researched Beckett's works. You said something to me very interesting. You said lots of actors reach burnout after playing one of Beckett's plays for a number of months. That burnout is part of the experience of being and playing with Beckett. Well, particularly Beckett's late plays are physical actions. You have to be in a very restricted position sometimes, in a very uncomfortable position. And so the task is much more athletic than some other performance types or performance styles. So while there is naturalism in some of the early plays, and there's a great joy and people love playing that work, you can really rest and fall back on the text. It's very potent and strong and beautiful language. But particularly working on the late plays, there are physical demands that are placed. And and traditionally, this has been talked about in connection with Not I, the famous play with the floating mouth, where the original actor, Billy Whitelaw, had a number of occasions in rehearsal where she literally felt that she was falling backwards into space or fainted in the rehearsal room. And if we look at the current language that's being used by uh, the Irish actress Lisa Dwan, who's doing a major international tour with uh, the Walter Asmus production of Not I, Footfalls, and Rockabye. She also speaks of this, and it's very clear that there's an element of difficulty in just getting through the process of doing it. And I think that it tells us something about the work, and it tells us something about acting itself in certain ways, because it's a different form of acting that's required from these actor bodies than playing a kind of text that doesn't have those demands. And Shona, is that what really attracts bums on seats, so to speak, when they go to a Becca play. Because it's exhilarating, it's emotionally demanding, it's psychological, spiritual, it's philosophy, it's everything. But it's so wonderfully demanding. Well, I think it's it's demanding, as Nick was saying, really, and talking about the pressure on the actor as a physical body. I mean, when you watch a Beckett performance and different directors take different views of this, but you can almost feel sometimes that the work is very, very choreographed in a very, very disciplined way. I mean, from a performance angle, I, mean, I suppose you're almost looking at it as theatre performance, You know, there's almost an element of dance in this where I think the demands, as Nick was saying, on the actors are to be more than speaking the text or enacting in that traditional way that actors would. One of the interesting things about Beckett's writing is how he analyses, understands and digests pain. We get an intellectual understanding of it, but we don't get the actual experience of it. Well, I'd agree with you that we don't necessarily get the actual experience of it, but it's also not purely an intellectual exercise in representation. A lot of his characters, both the prose and plays, talk about pain as a very generic condition, but pain in Beckett is more than just sort of the pain of an individual wound or a hurt. It's something perhaps a bit more fundamental and a bit more basic, and I think one of the reasons why he shifts between different genres, poetry, prose, drama, and then also radio drama and television drama, and the one film, and shifts between languages, English and French, is that he's trying to approach this idea from a variety of different perspectives and different media. It's a very basic articulation of what it means to exist and what it means to exist in pain. And I think this also, to tie in with what Shona was saying, is one of the reasons why I think Beckett has become so attractive now to a variety of different fora, is that while he's approaching, tending towards this one perspective with greater focus, greater determination, greater but also greater attenuation, or to use a word from one of his manuscripts, vaganing, one can take a number of different perspectives as an audience member, as a reader, in terms of enjoying it, understanding it, or appreciating it. And Nicholas, we're seeing a great surge in interest 
in Beckett. How are we understanding our Beckett and how misunderstood was Beckett? It's a very interesting and large question because his relationship to Ireland was very fractious during his lifetime. The works themselves were censored. So even until the 1960s, they really were not legally available here. And while that didn't happen to the same extent with the theatre, because there wasn't theatre censorship in the same way there was for, for print publication here, nonetheless, there was pressure on him to produce work in a certain way. And his fractious relationship with the country, I think, went both ways. There was a an element of feeling until about the year of his centenary. Um, there were only a few champions here, I think, in the 80s and 90s who were consistently trying to put that forward. But it was not really part of the national narrative as such to the extent that it has become until after the centenary in 2006. And then we start seeing these enormous state gestures like the naming of the Beckett Bridge, the naming of the boat, the sense that he's part of of a whole legacy that now fits in with with writing like Joyce. But for a person who lived in exile and who rejected not just aspects of the national narrative, but also aspects of the language of English that was spoken, and certainly has a number of insulting things in the course of his prose and radio to say about Irish as a language, it is not entirely clear cut that he would be embraced now as a national poet. But for the fact, I think, that he, he did discover something within his language, which remains powerfully connected to the Irish experience and even an Irish almost mythic quality that comes from the storyteller and the Shanachy and the sense that he is really of the of the land. And you can tell that from the landscapes of the prose and the images on stage in those pieces and the voices and the way that an Irish voice particularly lifts or picks up some of what he wrote, especially in English. And he was very connected with a lot of Irish writers and poets and across the world. He was quite the internationalist. What comparisons can we make with Beckett and other prominent dramatists, poets and writers? And who can we compare him to? Well, he was very famously friends with Joyce and assisted him when he was a young man. The relationship wasn't completely congenial. They had a falling out for a period in the 30s. But after the, the, the friendship began again in the late 30s, Beckett became very fond of Joyce. They began to see each other as equals would be an exaggeration. But Joyce certainly recognized a talent in Beckett that he didn't really recognize in almost anyone else he knew at the time. And Beckett even one of the letters to his friend Tom McGreevy from the 30s says that Joyce was a very is a very lovable human being, which is amazing sentiment to express about someone who could be quite as, as nasty as Joyce could be. So there's obviously the connection with Joyce, but Becca did also write a lot of his works in French first and could, with a good degree of justification, but also qualification, be considered as a French writer. Certainly the French do think of him as one of their own. In the 50s, when he had the first sort of explosion of fame around the publication of, and performances of Godot, which was first in French, and the trilogy of novels, Malone Dies or Malone Meurt and the unnameable L'Anomable, he was published by the Edition de Minuit, and because of that became associated with the movement, the Nouveau Romancier, which is maybe more an accident of publication, but he was certainly very close personally with the, the writer Michel Leris, and certain commonalities can be seen with Leris. There are a number of other French writers from the time that I think Beckett would be reasonably analogous to in terms of, as a playwright, he was very much linked with Pinter, and they're they also quite close friends. So it's it's a diverse cosmopolitan repertoire. And Shona, you were laughing there as Sam was talking about Beckett. How is the Beckett School promoting and celebrating the image of Beckett 
and also dealing with some of the complexities to Beckett because he's not easily put in a box. He was a larger than life character, a very rich thinker, but also a very troubled man. So it's a very challenging job to not only celebrate what's best about him, but also to really authentically communicate the value of who and actually what he was and what he stood for. I think that the idea for the school really came out of that very notion of trying to maybe expand people's view and perspective on Beckett. I mean, the notion of Beckett's studies like Joycean studies obviously has been on the increase. But what we wanted to do was not to separate Beckett, the writer and the students who are taking a scholarly interest from Beckett as a poet and Beckett as a dramatist and and all of the things. So instead of being an academic conference, it's a school where there's a huge amount of discussion and we have based it around lectures and seminars and performance is very much part of that. And then also we've developed a a small public programme in addition to that to try and maybe open up aspects of Beckett that maybe people aren't really that familiar with because you get the same things about Beckett all the time like you were talking at the beginning. It's also been a spectacularly exciting time in Beckett's studies. You'd mentioned that Beckett isn't a writer who's normally put in a box. Maybe sort of add to that, he's normally been put in several different boxes. Mm-hmm. I'd alluded to the fact that the French regard him as one of their writers. So you had up until fairly recently, the English language Beckett critics would ignore the French Beckett. Likewise, the French Beckett critics would ignore the fact that Beckett did also write in English, was also, in fact, an Irish writer. Beckett was once famously asked by a French journalist if he was English, to which he replied, au contraire. And Seamus Heaney talked about that line as perhaps something no better summation of being an Irish writer can be found. But so there have been all these boxes of Beckett, but Beckett the dramatist, Beckett the prose writer. But since the 90s, the, the segregation between these different communities has started to come down. There are more global, more holistic views of Beckett the writer. And a lot of the, the criticism, the work being done by young academics is very much taking part in this new sort of spirit of excitement of looking at Beckett in interdisciplinary ways. And one of the interesting things there is that his humour and how his humour has been embraced all over the world. It really defines him. It certainly does. And I think that it's not a simple humor because no. there is, uh, as we talked about earlier, the pain that, that's present. It's definitely a, a continuation and, or an ethic of going on in the face of grave difficulties. Mm. And frequently the humor arises out of the incongruity between the obvious horror of the situation mm. and people's ability mm. to bear up under that. And I think there's no national context or almost no life experience that doesn't contain those moments. <laughs> for, for that reason, there, there is this powerful ethic that both admits the pain as a witness, but also doesn't succumb to that as being a nihilistic or deterministic sort of universe Mm -hmm. in which life is not worth living. It's precisely the opposite in his world. And we very rarely see death or suicide represented. What we see is the deferral Mm -hmm. of those things and frequently the deferral through engagements which approach perhaps a kind of love, although it's a very complex sort of relation, Mm -hmm. but the the prominence of humor and the prominence of togetherness and kind of the primacy of love, which is the Mm -hmm. title of one Beckett monograph, is very important in his universe. Sam, how would you describe Beckett's engagement with love? He seemed, both in his plays and in his private life, to be very unsure in so many different ways when it came to love. Beckett's depiction of love, of romantic love, is certainly not that of a contemporary rom-com, but to maybe take a, a broad 
broader perspective on it, love is more the kind of a relationship of, of an individual to another, not just the romantic love. It is a strong concern throughout Beckett's works, this idea of the responsibility, the engagement in one individual has with someone else, the respect and rapport with other people. It's very much put on stage in Godot and Endgame, just to take two fairly obvious examples. It runs right through the condition of the main sequence of the three novels. And even when you get down to the unnameable, the sort of the voice of a single consciousness trying to define itself to itself, it's always concerned about others in a variety of different ways. In his last real novel, How It Is, which is a difficult book, a difficult and unpleasant book, it's very much about the concern of one to the other and how at the one hand that can be brutal, but how at the other hand it can also be this possibility of a kind of recognition and an understanding. And I think the later works, both in the drama and the prose, really bring this out. I think also, particularly in the plays, which I would be more familiar with, there's also that sense of longing and of absence Mm -hmm. and of companionship all turned around in different ways. And you sometimes get a a kind of a, a mixture of all of those emotions. It's funny when you listen as well to the radio plays, which have been performed in Dublin here, when you're listening sometimes to the exchanges between characters who have a relationship with 